Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Well, hello, everybody. It's a great day to travel and leave positive footprints. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, coming from our studios outside of the Metro Washington, D.C. area. On today's show, Eric Braden of the number one daytime drama, The Young and the Restless, continues his conversation on his life in Hollywood and how soccer made him a global citizen and bridge builder between the German and Israeli communities. Then Spanish chef Maria Jose San Roman joins us to talk about cuisine, culture, and share her remarkable life story. We connected with her in Washington when super chef Jose Andreas invited her to prepare paella during his annual D.C. Paella Festival last summer. And finally, Paul Butler of Rare Conservation sits down for a conversation about Rare's work in helping to save our planet. As always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And, of course, we look forward to connecting with you during the week on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Stitcher, a mobile app that lets you listen to World Footprints on the go. So join us on our social networks, sign up for our letter, or learn more about Stitcher at worldfootprints.com. Recently, Eric Braden, best known as Victor Newman of the CBS number one daytime drama, The Young and the Restless, joined us to talk about his early life in America and Hollywood. Today, we continue our conversation with Eric as we learn more about Hollywood, his efforts to overcome negative stereotyping of Germans in the entertainment industry, and his efforts to build German-Israeli relationships, something he did as a soccer player. You chose a name that that you could relate to and, and that right. resonated with you, and I you know, I I, uh, I applaud you. I'm, I'm I'm disappointed that back in those days, the studios, you know, did not embrace uh, no. ethnicity. And I mean, even Oprah, when she was here in in, in Baltimore, you know, they right. wanted her to change her name to Susie. Can you imagine? Right. right. <laughs> um, so that's right. Uh, it, it's just a, it's a pity. But it, I'm glad to see. You know, I believe that that the studios have come uh, come a good ways. I, I'm sure there's a long ways to go. Uh, well, I've always said if Arnold Schwarzenegger had been German, uh, yeah. he would not have made that. He would not have made that career. <laughs> he, he was. I, I'm serious. I'm I'm very serious. Oh. He was lucky to have been Austrian, and uh, huh. uh, so he became a cartoon-like figure. And uh, but he, you know, always makes sure that he tells people he's Austrian. Hmm. Maximilian Schell, the wonderful German actor, used to introduce himself here in Hollywood as uh, saying, Hello, I'm Maximilian Schell, I'm Swiss. Oh. Hmm. And uh, uh, I'm German, I will never deny it. I'm from there, I'm uh, proud of my roots, um, will always be proud of them, but certain realities had to be, had to be looked at. And uh, now, of course, I'm perfectly aware that Germans constitute the largest ethnic group in America mm-hmm. uh, amongst immigrants that is unbeknownst to most people because of the First and Second World War. Mm-hmm. So the contributions in this country by German immigrants have been fundamental and okay. substantial. And um, I've been talking about that obviously ever since because it kind of um, gets my goat that all that is being denied and not talked about and uh, a lot of German immigrants changed their names. Hmm. And, um, you know, Eisenhower was Eisenhower, hmm. H-A-U-E-R. Huber, I mean, Hoover was Hoover. 
then you have Wanamaker, you have Rockefeller, you have um, Trump, you have uh, Babe Ruth, you have Lou Gehrig, you have, mm-hmm. I mean, all the immigrants of German uh, German descent in this country is just enormous. The anti-Midwest, most mm-hmm. of them. Yes. Um, Anheuser-Busch, Schlitzbier, I mean, it goes on, and uh, Levi's, uh, Levi Strauss, the blue jeans. Um, it's Catherine it's Graham. enormous. Yeah. One of the things about what you've done in your life is that you've you've overcome so much, and you are the sum of those life experience, and I've understood that your character of Victor Newman, that you see yourself in him. Talk to us about that. <laughs> well, I do in some ways, and I don't in others. <clears throat> he started out as a, as a very bad guy. And after about a year of that, I told Bill Bell, who was the, the owner and originator and head writer of the show, a wonderful man, and I said, Bill, I, I just, I am, I'm played out. I, I can't play these dehumanized characters anymore. I've done that for too many years. And um, I said, is there any way we can give this character a social background that explains why he became who he is? And he came up with a wonderful storyline. And uh, one that he tells to Nikki, his first wife, on Christmas Eve. She's curious about his wherever, where he came from, and uh, she had no idea it was a mystery. And Victor finally breaks down and tells her that he was left at an orphanage at the age of seven by his destitute parents and um, uh, had been alone ever since. Mm-hmm. So once I played that scene, uh, we had imbued the character with a certain amount of humanity, and I said, now I'm going to stay. And I knew from then on, it, it you know, rarely does it happen in this town that you marry the right man with the right character. It doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. And uh, I recognized it very soon and uh, knew that I would stay. Well, I mean, it was it was a great move. Obviously, you've been uh, you've right. been on YNR for nearly three decades now. Right. So, yeah, thirty. In fact, thirty-one years. Oh, thir- oh my goodness. Okay, oh. holy cow, Eric. You know, something I alluded to was um, a little-known fact about you. I mean, everyone sees you uh, as your characters, and you've played many, many of them. Been on uh, shows that I grew up with: Hawaii Five-O, Murder oh, She yeah. Wrote. You know, I mean, oh my gosh. The list uh, just goes on. Mary Tyler Moore, mm-hmm. FBI. Yeah. Young yeah. Hooks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sure you kind of got back to your cowboy roots there. I tell you, yeah. you were you were really in there in CBS back in the day. Yeah, yeah. that's right. But but you've you've you know you've done a lot to to change the unfair generalities that uh, people have about about Germans and you know and you've done a lot of outreach and um, really to 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 create a dialogue you know from playing soccer with the Maccabees and uh, winning that 1972 national uh, champion. We won the U.S. championship with the, with the Maccabees, right? Yeah, well. we've been talking a lot about soccer this year. Just my you know. My my sports husband here uh, knew about your team. Have you followed them? Have you kept up with with uh, with the team at all? No, the it, it, it was then the highest league in America. It was just before the Cosmos and mm-hmm. and, and other professional teams uh, started coming in, and uh, we won the U.S. Cup seventy two seventy three, and uh, after that I I stopped 
um, and devoted myself completely to what I'm doing. But I followed soccer, uh, obviously, um, especially the World Cup, and primarily I followed soccer as it evolved here in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of, of, of what um, AYSO has done to contribute to that. And I remember, very few people know that, but I remember the guy who started the AYSO is a fellow called Hans Stierle, mm-hmm. who he and his wife lived in Torrance, California. And when we had the Greater Los Angeles Soccer League, uh, I played for a rather well-known team then, and he would come every so often and talk to us and said, well, I'm going to start a whole new league called the American Youth Soccer Association, mm. and we're going to have boys and girls play. And we laughed at him at first. I said, well, good luck to you. And the rest is history. It is arguably one of the most successful stories in the history of sports in this country. And But his name is often forgotten. His name is never mentioned. Hans Stieler started the entire growth of soccer in America amongst American boys and girls. Hmm. And he started it at a great school in Torrance, California, with his sons and his daughters. I'll be darned. They all want, you bet. And what? he lives now in, in the state of Washington. But that name, he should get a Congressional Medal of Honor, or one of those uh, medals he should get, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's extraordinary. Stiele is spelled S-T-I-E-R-L-E, Hans, H-A-N-S. And he was born in America of German parents in Chicago, I think, and then became enamored of soccer. And he started that whole, and he's never talked about mm. it. makes me angry. Anyway, then I coached my son's team for nearly 30 years, mm. and we were twice in the final four for the American Cup. Anyway, I finally gave it up. Well, one of the things that we love about soccer is, is how that ball creates global citizenship and global citizens. And and clearly your your story and even what, what you just shared is, is evidence of that. And, and I know that as we prepared for, for your interview today, we learned about all of the bridges that you built in terms of the German-Jewish dialogue and the awards that you've uh, won and, and so forth and, and, and all of that. Talk to us about, about some of these bridges that have been built and how we're helping to change the dialogue there, even through the world of sport. It's very important. Well, I, I was very concerned as someone of my generation uh, was when I saw the first films, or the first film about concentration camps in in Nazi Germany, and I was shocked to the core. And when you grew up in Germany after the war, you didn't hear about that until they started showing films in the 60s. But I already was gone then, so I saw my first film about the horrors of of the Nazi regime uh, in Beverly Hills. There was a movie theater on Beverly Drive and Wilshire Boulevard. doesn't exist anymore. And it showed a film called Mein Kampf, mm. a Swedish documentary. And I tell you, that obviously has been one of the most important moments or hour and a half that I've ever spent in the theater, mm-hmm. movie theater. And I came out, I was shocked to the core. And that happened to a lot of people in my generation. So... And living in America at the same time, you, you, you hear a lot of anti-German stuff. And so you, you vacillate between enormous anger at what your parents' generation 
was a part of. And between the incessant anti-German stuff you have to hear in the media in America. Even today? Even today? Oh, yeah. yeah, More or less, yes. It's not as much anymore, but it's it's still there much more than, than... uh, trust me, I and anyone who denies it is 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 not as sensitive to it as as I am, obviously. Um, long story short, I after that very consciously began to play soccer for the Maccabees, a Jewish team, because I wanted to show that not every German is a priori anti-Semitic, and uh, the reality is that Jews were more successfully assimilated in German society prior to the rise of Hitler than in any other country of the world, more successfully than in England or France, more successfully than in America. We must not forget that anti-Semitism in America was alive and well during, during all that time, in the 40s and 50s and earlier into the 60s, where you had quotas at certain universities, where in country clubs would not allow Jewish members, uh, uh, Jews to join, etc. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's uh, prior to Hitler's rise to power in Germany, uh, the 500,000 Jews who lived in Germany were more successfully assimilated in German society than anywhere. People forget that. Mm-hmm. So I was just angry at the presumption in most media in, in, in America at the time, after the Second World War, that every German was an anti-Semite. I said, no, hell no. Uh, I wasn't then, I still am not. Mm -hmm. So I very consciously played for uh, um, a Jewish team, the Maccabees, and I played with about seven or eight Israelis from the Israeli First Division and and national team, and we are still close friends. Mm -hmm. And I learned, learned sports is wonderful in the sense that it, it does away with all the prejudices in the world with after about five minutes. Once you're to oxygen debt, you begin to have respect for anyone yes. who is your opponent or who plays with you. Mm-hmm. Be they Jewish, Christian, Muslim, black, white, mm-hmm. it makes no difference. And that's why sports are so vitally important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Vitally important. I, I, I feel that um, a lot of politicians in the world did not come from sports. Never had their ass kicked. Mm-hmm. Never right. had their ass kicked. Never learned respect for an opponent of any color, any creed, any mm-hmm. religion. Mm-hmm. They didn't learn that. Think about it for a moment. A Hitler, that soft ass, or a Himmler, all these guys around him, they didn't come from sports. If you come from sports, you learn respect for another human being. Whether it be in boxing and wrestling and soccer and rugby and football and track and field, what, think of the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. Yes. Where the German long jumper helped Jesse Owens to, to adjust his steps before he did his last long jump and Jesse Owens established a world record. Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm. This, these were athletes yes. talking to each other. It's, 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 that's why sports are so important. And that is why we must not cut back on sports in in grade school or high schools. Uh, That includes Germany as well now. Mm -hmm. Because of budget uh, constraints, they have less and less sports in schools. I think that is to the detriment of society. I couple that with the arts. You know, I'm uh, really disappointed that a lot of the arts programs are being cut. And I grew up, you know, I grew up very humbly. And 
I traveled as a kid vicariously through my books and through playing classical music or singing or acting. And, you know, that that's where I developed my my travel bug. You know, that's where I got yes. bit by the travel bug. And it's, you know, and, and now I'm using that to 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 contribute uh, more to society through through what we're doing here. And so um you know, they, they are, the system is, I think, cheating children out of growth yes. and, and educational opportunities by, by cutting these you. programs. Completely agree with you. Anyway, I proudly play for the Maccabees, and obviously what ensued is a lot of dialogue with, with uh, uh, you know, I played Nazi characters during the week sometimes, and then wore the Star of David on Sundays, to the confusion of a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, so we had a lot of discussions, and I learned a hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. We had two Ethiopians from the Ethiopian national team playing for us, we had a Mexican, a Brazilian, uh, two Germans, and then the rest were Israelis. Mm. And I'm very close friends with, with many of them now. And uh, that's why I also feel very close ties to Israel mm-hmm. and always will. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there you are. And, and you actually received uh, the humanitarian award from the government of, of Israel um, and have traveled to the country several times right. as a guest of the government uh, right. just because of your, your work there. Um, and really, with all the honors and awards you've received over the years from, you know, your Medal of Honor of uh, uh, Ellis Island, uh, Federal Medal, Medal of Honor, and uh, the uh, Medals of Honors by the um, German government, I, do you have, not, yes. not to mention your Emmy, Emmy and People's Choice yeah. Award, do you have yeah. room on your walls anymore? <laughs> you know, I, I, to be honest with you, I, I sometimes look for this stuff. I don't know where it is, but <laughs> oh it's, it's all very nice. I'm very proud of it. Hey. I, let me tell you a story. Sure. I, <laughs> to put, put it all in perspective, I, you know, I'm, I'm totally enamored of my granddaughter, who is six and a half. I'm just, I just love her. And she, when she was about three, three or four, I remember I got the star of the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Mm-hmm. And, and they give you a little replica of it. And she said, she calls me Opa, which is the German affectionate term for grand, grandpa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she says, Opa, what's that? I said, well, my sweetheart, that says my name on it. You know, that's, um, I just got that recently. And I said, I said can you read my name? She says, oh, Opa, kaka, poo pipi. Oh, no. I said, no. She says, yes, <laughs> Opa, kaka, poo pipi. <laughs> so, oh, bless her. So, so <laughs> put things in perspective. When we come back, Spanish chef Maria Jose San Roman shares the story behind paella and other aspects of Spain's culinary culture as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, my name is Jeannie. I am from Fiji. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive, non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport processing. I'm Lord Richard. And I'm from Northern Ireland, and I have uh, a record company uh, which produces New Orleans records, jazz records from the 1960s and early 70s uh, from New Orleans. (laughs) 
And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. For two weeks in June, the award-winning Haleos Tapas Bar, under the direction of famed chef Jose Andreas, celebrates Spain's favorite culinary tradition, paella. This year marks the 8th annual Paella Festival, and many dishes based on recipes created by this year's special chef guest, Spain's honored chef Maria Jose San Roman. Based in Alicante, chef Maria Jose is a self-taught chef and is considered one of the top female chefs in Spain. An expert in traditional Catalan and Valencia cooking, she decided on a career in restaurants and hospitality after studying law and language. And I'm very, very happy to Welcome, Chef Maria Jose, to our show. Bienvenido. Bienvenida. Thank you very much. <laughs> you are another wonderful example of how your life can flourish when you follow your passion. Tell us a story about what inspired you to leave your studies to pursue a culinary career. You know, when I, w- I got married very early, I was 21 when I got married, and I was married and studying laws. Languages were first. I mean, I, the first thing I did, because my mother thought languages were very important, when I was 15, I went to Switzerland for a year to learn French. And I was, when I was 17, I went to England. So it's after my languages that I studied laws. But I get very, very young, at, I get married, and I got pregnant. I got, I got my first baby when I was 22. Hmm. So I was going to the university, studying, having my family, and, uh, you know, too many things together, mm-hmm. and I thought laws is not interesting. My life is my private life is much better. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the beginning, it was just my family, which means also cooking, because uh, that the first thing that my husband gave me as a present was a, an encyclopedia of culinary uh, cooking. Mm. Ten, ten books about everything about food. And uh, I always, my mother was a very good chef, and, uh, well, she cooked at home, but she was a very good cooking woman, mm-hmm. and I always loved to cook. So I, I did cook for my family in the very beginning, because I've got three kids, so... You know, in, in my family, cooking for others is the way we express love to, to each other and to other people. Is that the same for your family? Of course. You know, I, I come, my, my mother is originally from the north of Spain, where they, what they do everything, every day, if you are even a tourist and you reach a house, you will always be invited to eat. <laughs> I mean, we love to share food with our friends, with anybody. And this came with all my package. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like this, too. I love to give people and to feed people and... Uh, I really enjoy. I mean, it's not a work. It's a joy for me to do this Mm -hmm. every day. What is it about paella that makes this dish such a celebrated culinary tradition in Spain? Well, in in the part of Spain that is uh, with the Mediterranean Sea, uh, we we grow since the very beginning with rice. Our culture is rice. And we don't even call this paella, which just means the pan where you cook the rice. Because in the very beginning, this wasn't cooked in a paella, it was in a, in a pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I think what we grow the most, um, maybe it was the most successful cereal, was uh, rice. That's why we start cooking on it. 
And uh, as you know, even Asians, they do cook rice. So rice has got something that really people, we love, people love rice. And I think the way we present it with a, probably according to the color too, is very much, uh, it comes in the eyes very, like, uh, uh, that you like to eat it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Probably the color, and you know why I'm talking about color. <laughs> but the co yellow color of the traditional paella rice, Right. It uh, makes it very, very um, ap 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 uh, that you like it. I don't know. If what other dishes are considered culinary traditions in Spain? Well, we also do have um, gazpachos, which are not oh, known yes. at all here. But not. I don't mean the the soup. The soup, you know, we we do gazpachos, um, cold gazpachos everywhere. But we have another gazpacho that comes uh, from La Mancha, mm -hmm. and uh, it goes also to Alicante and Valencia community, which is a pasta. It's like a dry bread, flat dry bread. Mm -hmm. And we make a broth with meat, with fish, with whatever available, mushrooms. And when this is cooked, we just throw the pasta on the top oh. and leave it to cook. But it, this pasta is very, very interesting. It's, like a very very flat bread it reminds me a bit the like the pita arab bread and can you imagine how does this taste also i'm mm. i'm visualizing because i'm quite hungry right now <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is coming next then <laughs> i'm telling jose andres you should work a little bit on the gazpachos because it's a whole world around gazpachos too <laughs> and it's not very well known now when we talk about paella what are some of the differences in the way that it's prepared in spain versus the way that it's prepared in the u.s well the the, the first thing is we never use chorizo in a paella aha mm. uh -huh. never and you see this here and you see this in france in germany when i travel around the world I always see the chorizo in the paella. I, <laughs> and I don't like so chorizo. <laughs> Pardon? I don't like chorizo. Well, if you, if you try the good chorizo, you will love it. But um, in the tradition, it's never been in the paella. I mean, we never used to chor uh, chorizo. And uh, I really come from the place where the paella is born. Mm -hmm. And we don't use it at all. But we, besides this, we do rice out of everything we have available in the market. Onions, pumpkin. I, I particularly love to use a lot of vegetables in my paella. Sometimes, the, you, as you will see in Jaleo, there is even we are going to cook a vegetarian, completely vegetarian paella. And uh, most of my paellas have um, uh, like artichoke, aubergines, and uh, garlic sprouts, chickpeas, uh, full of vegetables always. Will be like fifty percent of the rice will be vegetables. Now I'm curious does uh, does the preparation of paella uh, differ in the various regions throughout Spain, or is it a pretty uh, is it prepared pretty uh, in a standard fashion? Well, um, in, in the rest of the country, because we Valencia community is the let's say the owner mm -hmm. <laughs> of the paella, right? In the rest of the country, they follow the rules of the paella. You know, like very traditional, and it's even a, a Paella. But uh, in Alicante, we do paella, um, I tell you, it's, it's uh, sardines, um, uh, cod. It's very traditional to cook it with cod, and even only with the skins of the cod, mm. of the salted cod. Just the skins of the salted cod and vegetable will make one of the most amazing paella we have in Spain. And this is not well known. It's not popular at all. So you can make, uh, if you can... 
read in the books. It's more than 150 different recipes in Alicante where we really work a lot of different rices. And we also make them soupy. Uh-huh. As I'm going to show also in Jaleo, it, may, it doesn't need to be a flat paella. It's like when you talk about sushi. I mean, sushi means rice. So paella is just a container, but we like to call them rice mm-hmm. so that we can cook it so many ways. As this soupy one that used to be from the fishermen tradition because they, they were not able to make a flat paella. The, the, the boat was moving. Mm. <laughs> so they normally use a tripod to put a, a big pot hanging, and there is what where they make a nice broth out of what they get from the from the sea. Mm. And they eat the fish first, and then they add the rice to the broth, and they eat the rice after, like a, like a soup, you know? This is really very, very delicious. We are cooking one in this way with your soft-shell crab, I think. We couldn't get the nice langoustines we, that we have in the Mediterranean Sea, so we decide to use your crabs, which hmm. are beautiful. Uh, well, Ian's eyes just perked up. That's one of his favorite, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> favorite foods. Yeah, that's truly one of my favorite crustaceans. <laughs> Marie Jose, you've presented at uh, a number of culinary conferences around the world, including the Culinary Institute of America's World of Flavors Conference and the Madrid Fusion Conference. And you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, that I understand, we understand uh, the uh, your primary ingredient ingredient in, in paella, which makes it so special. Um, and, and I know that you work closely with the uh, Spanish saffron industry and, and travel around the world also, lecturing on saffron. Talk about the importance of fusing flavors, of blending flavors, and specifically the relationship between saffron, which is a native uh, Asian spice, and Spanish dishes like paella. Well, before coming to America, I think the, uh, the only flavor that we, we were using with food in the middle century was saffron. We get this from the Phoenicians in the Mediterranean coast, which was a big motorway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was very easy to get in touch with the traditions with the Arab countries. But, and, and it grew in Spain so easy. And uh, so La Mancha was full of saffron. We have been the, the bigger produces for many years. Well, now we are not anymore, mm-hmm. but the industry is lying there, you know, especially we in Alicante, where I live, there is about a hundred uh, different uh, industries around saffron, and we export all over the world. Even here, you, you've got uh, saffron from Alicante. It's a little village called Novenda, Novelda, and it lives out of saffron. Everybody's putting saffron in packages. So that's why they, 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 they've got in the university, they've got somebody that is researching about saffron for more than 10 years, and they really know all about it, and they wrote very boring books about <laughs> saffron. And, uh, uh, and they decide they want to have a chef to play with all their, um, what, their knowledge. So it was me. Mm. Uh, they, they asked me, please, to... Um, can you imagine how excited I was to be asked uh, to work on such a nice uh, flavor and uh, such a nice spice. I'm this sure. Was like, this was like five years ago. So I, I get really crazy about it. And uh, every single thing, because I knew the rules, because they told me if you put this for a certain temperature and a certain time, you will get more color, you will get more flavor. 
you won't get color if you put it in fat. Uh, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, they explain, and, and, and I read the books, and I've been touched by them. And now uh, the results are that I'm crazy about it, and uh, there's so many things to do. And I've been, as you say, I've been working, uh, traveling around the world talking about my, the things and mm-hmm. the research that I've done myself in the kitchen. For example, working with sweets or sugar, the, the saffron becomes like two times as powerful as in salted, you know? Mm. You know, there really is an art to not only cooking and blending flavors and, um, you know, but, but there's an art to eating as well. And sometimes uh, when we, when people travel, um, they don't really, they don't really take the time to really understand the flavors that are in the food, the flavors that came together to prepare uh, the dish that they're enjoying. Can you can you talk a little bit ab- about just the importance of understanding what what it is you you're eating and and understanding the the different flavors and for um, uh, acknowledging the different flavors. Well, that that's culture. And um, when when I travel, I really enjoy the difference. Uh, if you go to Malaysia, that where you can get. Thai, uh, Indian, and uh, Chinese food. Uh, I get mad. I mean, it's, it's so, <laughs> so excited. <laughs> Every single day you get something new. You know, it's, uh, it's something like uh, like the stars. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, this makes my my travels so excited. And I mean, I, I don't care very much about other things, uh, even uh, old buildings. And I'm just interested in food and mm-hmm. colors and. I'm now want to go to Peru, which seems to be the the most excited pla- exciting <laughs> place to, to find different things. They've got so many potatoes, like um, hundreds of different potatoes, and it's a world around only potatoes. Hmm. So of course, when uh, the, I think this is the the very exciting thing in the world that we are so rich. And you go to Iceland, where you think is no life at all, right. and they've they've got a lot of things to show. You know, mm. the way they dry fish is completely different. The way we do in Spain, they mm-hmm. they, they don't use salt, and uh, so 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 excited to to know all these things. I'm, I'm quite lucky because I travel quite a lot. When you travel the world, are there places outside of Spain that appeal to you from a from a food standpoint? Are there places that you like to visit because of the food and the chefs? Well, I'm I'm very excited about coming to the United States now because you're really getting very good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank I, you. I, Yes, I, I've been coming to the United States for a long time, but now your your food is getting so much better. I mean, you are on the way, and you get here things from all over the world, and when you go to the original countries, they are not as good. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to, well, I don't want to mention places, but uh, you can get probably the best Greek food here, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Or Arabic or Iranian. Um, Iran has got a very, very huge cuisine, and you can get it in the United States. Mm. So probably I'm very pleased to be here. Marie Jose, I wanted to ask you about your book. I'm, I'm so excited. You have a book coming out, I believe, this fall. And um, can you tell us a little bit 
about your book and um, and, and specifically uh, when it's uh, due to come out? Yes. Well, my book. I, when I when I start working on saffron, I start looking on books in, in all around the world by the internet and. Uh, and I found there's nothing, nothing written about saffron, nothing really special. I mean, you can find uh, the, the title of the books are uh, Amazing Saffron. Or, I mean, saffron is uh, one of the words, but when you open the book, maybe it's a novel. So there, uh, um, it's a myth uh, in, in the market about how to use saffron, how to recognize saffron, and how much saffron to use for what, mm-hmm. which, which was the main point that make me, make me work, makes me work about how much, because he's always talking about a pinch, a few threads, and a little bit, and well, how can you can this if you want to make uh, food for a hundred? So everybody is going to keep suffering in a safe box, and uh, they don't use it. Mm-hmm. They don't know the people, even chefs, professional chefs, when I read the recipes, they don't know how to use it. And uh, you may read in a very good newspaper talking about one gram of saffron to make um, creme brulee for, for people. Creme brulee? Saffron uh, and creme brulee? Of course. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> saffron everywhere. <laughs> oh, I love this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of the things you can do. But, I mean, one gram is, is more than ten times what you... No, more than... 100 times what you are using to make full creme brulee. Mm. And this is something you can read very, very often. They talk about uh, the amounts, and there is nothing very, very right. So um, the main part of my book, because we've been um, trying and trying and trying with a a group of 15 people, and we've been eating with uh, fish, with milk, with uh, meat, and uh, all kind of food, and we decide... What is going to be the minimum and the maximum uh, uh, that you can have on saffron for a certain amount? Oh. Let's say for one milk l- liter of milk, it wouldn't be more than 100 milligrams, for example. That would be the maximum. Well, if you ever need any any uh, people to help with your research and taste uh, some of your <laughs> recipes, I volunteer. <laughs> And thank you so much for, for joining us, uh, Marie Jose. And I'm very glad to be here, and I, I'm very glad to see that Jose Andres is showing the real Spanish cuisine. I'm very, I'm very surprised to see in his kitchen the authentic Spanish cuisine. It's really, um, I'm very proud, you know, when you are Spanish and you go abroad, you, it's not what you get everywhere. He's doing a wonderful work here, and Jaleo is uh, up to date What to what we do in Spain now. Oh, well, Maria Jose, muchas gracias for joining us today. Muchas gracias a vosotros. After the break, we'll introduce Paul Butler of Rare Conservation and learn how Rare is helping to protect our planet when World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, my name is Asutui and Sarah. I am from Samoa, and I really love the World Footprints Radio, and I love this family that Talk to me like friends to me. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. 
You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hello, this is Mertice Spadola from Gallery Mertice in Baltimore, Maryland, and I love World Footprint Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. As Senior Vice President of Global Programs at Rare Conservation, Paul Butler is one of the environmental field's foremost experts in communication for social and behavioral change. Paul developed Rare's signature program, the Pride Campaign, which has now been replicated in more than 170 sites and over 50 countries. And he joins us to talk about the conservation work Rare is doing around the world. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Give us a brief overview of Rare's mission and the activities that uh, Rare has undertaken. Well, well, Rare specializes in behavior change. Um, And it has a model for determining behaviors that are causing threats to biodiversity at the community level around the world. And uh, working with our partners, uh, which uh, represent either government agencies or large conservation organizations or even small conservation organizations, mainly in the developing tropics, but not exclusively, uh, we teach our campaign managers how to identify the threats, how to identify the sources of the threats, the people that lie behind them, and then how to craft two-year social marketing campaigns that move people towards more sustainable resource behaviors. Talk to us about RARE as an organization. As I understand, there's a there's RARE Conservation and RARE Planet. Talk to us about what these two sides of the organization focus and their mission. Well, well RARE itself is the institution. It's based in Arlington, uh, Washington, D.C., and we're an international conservation organization uh, that doesn't have projects within the continental United States. Mm. Um, Rare Planet is actually the web portal um, which we use to manage campaigns and which interested people come to and visit our campaigns. Uh, Many of them update themselves in near real time. So uh, one of your listeners interested in looking at and learning about one of our campaigns around the world can go to www.rareplanet.org and through that portal can see where we're working and the various campaigns and what, what topics they're working on, which in, in some countries is looking at destructive fishing, in others looking at deforestation in the uh, watersheds of the upper Andes. We also have campaigns working on bushmeat, on coastal pollution, a wide range of issues. So I would urge any of your listeners, if they want to uh, look at what we're doing, simply to log on to Rare Planet Portal. Now, speaking of the work that you're doing, October 4th was uh, World Animal Day, and I know that Rare organized uh, a lot of activities um, around the world uh, in, in celebration of World Animal Day. Talk a, li- talk a little bit about some of the activities that Rare spearheaded. Well, I think actually what, what is a better to say is every day for Rare and our partners is World Animal Day or World Environment Day. Um, Our campaigns are going on 24-7, 365 days of the year around the world. And so in any one particular site where we're working, our campaign managers would have been active in their campaigns. And so in some sites, we're working in Mexico, for example, our campaigns might be using mascots to visit schools or might be visiting communities of fishers, talking to them one-on-one about the benefits of adopting more sustainable resource practices. Um, And so really... 
Uh, I, I don't like to think of any one day as being particularly important for threatened wildlife. Every day is critical, and we're, we're delighted to be working with some of the best conservationists in the world, young uh, individuals working in often very difficult circumstances, trying to change behaviors uh, for the betterment of not only the environment, but also the people too. Now, um, Paul, I know you, speaking of you know campaigns and, and, and constant work, I know you spearheaded the development of the Rare Pride campaign um, that's now been enacted all over the world. Talk to us about the impact of the Pride campaign, what the Pride campaign is, and, and really uh, the genesis of this campaign, how it got started. Sure. Well, a typical Pride campaign melds two, two things together. It melds social marketing and barrier removal. And for those of you, your listeners, who are not sure what social marketing is, perhaps it's best to define it. Social marketing is really the use of marketing principles to influence human behavior uh, in, in order to benefit society. So where corporate marketing might market you a watch um, and you uh, spend money to buy the watch, um, making a profit for the particular company, in the case of social marketing, we're using marketing principles to shift human behaviors for the benefit of society in, in toto and, and of the individual. And what Pride campaigns do is use social marketing to work with resource users to make them aware of the issues and to help them to understand the benefits of adopting a more sustainable resource practice. So, for mm -hmm. example, in Mexico, we're working with fishers. Um, we would like fishers to respect the no-take zones, particularly, for example, around Loreto Bay, and to adopt more sustainable practices. Now, simply informing them of the benefits without literally helping them to, to, to shift their behavior is not going to result in real change. So our partners at the site are working with fishers, for example, to establish cooperatives, to help them to access incentives, to help them to put into place community enforcement, to help them work with the Mexican authorities to establish um, some apps to the fishers. So in other words, it's beneficial for the individual fishers to adopt this new behavior. Mm -hmm. They may be giving up something, in this case, unsustainable fishing, but in return, they're getting something. And this is really the secret of, of social marketing. It's about an exchange. If you want someone to give something up or give up an old behavior and accept a new one, you've got to offer that person something that's appealing in return. It's not always financial. It may be a, a, a social recognition. It sure. may be an, an alternative livelihood. And that's really what our Pride campaigns do. They market alternative behaviors that will benefit the individual as, be as well as benefiting the environment. Ah, I, you know, and, and I mean, very similar to um, uh, other programs uh, that we've we've worked with and encountered, uh, particularly sea turtles. You know, they, uh, the the foundation, um, you know, works to um, really educate the local uh, population on the benefits, the 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 um, financial benefits of keeping sea turtles alive as a as a you know, because of the tourist draw versus killing off the young turtles and using the, you know, their shells for um, souvenirs. So it's that kind of that kind of um, of, of, of push that uh, that you guys are um, promoting. Exactly. And social marketing may seem to be a new term for some of your listeners, but I, I suspect many of them have been exposed in their own way to social marketing campaigns in the U.S. So, for example. I know some years ago there was a click it or ticket um, campaign to get people to use seat belts. Yes. That's an example of a social marketing campaign. So there they're persuading people to buckle up, to buckle their seat belt, 
in exchange for not getting a ticket or not having to pay a fine. There are plenty of other examples, you know, Smokey the Bear with regards to fire or um, anti-smoking advertisements or the Don't Mess with Texas is another good example of a U.S. <laughs> social marketing campaign. Right. Um, where where the, the benefits in the Don't Mess with Texas are not so much financial or or, but really playing upon the, the pride that Texans have in their, in, in their, in their state. Mm-hmm. And pride is something that we embed in all of our own campaigns around the world. Pride that uh, many of these countries and sites we work in have unique species, unique birds or animals that no one in the world has. And you were talking about the very first campaign, which is more than 30 years ago, which I myself ran. Um, and that was with the government of St. Lucia in the Eastern Caribbean, where I had the privilege and, and great pleasure of working with my colleagues in the forestry department of that government. And uh, the government of St. Lucia at that time had just become independent. It was a new nation uh, um, um, stemming from, from um, Britain, Britain leaving. And there they declared a national bird, in that case, the St. Lucian parrot, which is endemic. It's only found in St. Lucia, nowhere else in the world. And working with the forestry department, we used that uh, new national bird to create an enormous sense of pride around it. And of course, if you're proud of your national bird, you don't want to kill it and make it extinct. And people rallied behind that campaign and rallied behind the notion of of a sense of national pride, and indeed the population of that species, far from becoming extinct, as was predicted by the scientists, has actually um, rebounded. And obviously we're very pleased with that. And all the pride campaigns that have gone on since then, and we've now run about 170 of them in more than 50 countries, have built off that original premise of working with pride. And, and over the years, they've evolved as campaigns. They've become more sophisticated, a greater focus on behavior change, not simply shifts in knowledge and attitude. But they're all fundamentally using pride to promote conservation. Paul, you mentioned countries such as St. Lucia and, and Mexico, uh, countries that have uh, tremendous biodiversity, but most countries have ecosystems, some more complex than others, but each country has a role to play. Talk to us about some of the challenging places where RARE is working and what are some of the focused countries that have some of these really complex systems that people may not be aware of. We work in many, many different countries, and there's what, what people call the mega-diverse countries. So these are countries that either by the fact they have enormous biodiversity or simply their, their sheer size are incredibly important. So those would include, for example, um, the Andean countries, uh, Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, uh, countries like the Philippines or Indonesia, Madagascar. Uh, these are incredibly important for biodiversity, and we work in, in all of those and, and many others. Um, they can be... Um, challenging. Many of them can be challenging. Often we're working in extremely remote areas. Uh, we've worked in, in uh, the Congo, which is pretty remote. We've worked in fairly remote sites in Papua New Guinea. Um, sometimes the challenges are not just their remoteness. Uh, we worked in Sierra Leone, which, which uh, as you know, is a country that uh, had terrible uh, civil war a number of years ago, and we uh, had the privilege of working with an incredible conservationist called Edward Sesse not long after the war had finished. And you can imagine in, in a ravaged country, talking about environment isn't, isn't easy. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a campaign right now, which is just uh, wrapping up um, on the North Korean border. It's on the Chinese side of the North Korean border, oh, I have my to goodness. say. But nevertheless, fairly remote in itself. And that's a campaign around the Siberian tiger, uh, run in conjunction with the Hunshun National Park and, and, and the Wildlife Conservation Society. And they, the problem there is not, not simply that people hunt the tigers, but rather they hunt the tiger prey. 
And in taking the tiger prey for food, there is less food for the tigers, and therefore, in addition to all the other threats that the tigers face, um, um, the tigers also face the problem of, of lack of food. Mm -hmm. And the campaign there was really around uh, offering uh, um, poachers or offering villages, should I say, that in exchange for setting up community patrols and going out and, and removing the snares, the snares that they use to catch the tiger's prey, in exchange for that, we would offer them alternative livelihoods in the form of bee boxes and, and, and other things. And actually, that's uh, showing initial signs of considerable success um, uh, in self-reported behavior change. Uh, the number of people eating wild animals has decreased from 56% to 18%. Um, the percent of restaurants selling wild game, which was a major outlet for, for the poachers to sell their produce, has declined from 22% to 4%. Hmm. And more importantly, the, um, the average monthly incidence of poaching, for example, have been reduced from 24 to 6. And the number of snares found have reduced from 560 to something like 300. So that campaign, which is using pride, pride in the tiger, but also promoting alternative livelihoods for these people that go out and catch prey to, to make an income, Certainly. is beginning to show some signs of success. And, and we're thrilled to see that. And obviously, success doesn't happen overnight. It's something that our colleagues in Hunchung will have to build on. Mm -hmm. It's fairly indicative of a, of a pride campaign in the work we do. I heard you mention a couple of organizations that you've partnered with to reach mutual goals. I um, thought I heard you mention um, the National Wildlife Conservatory or Nature Conservatory. What are some of the, um, some of the other partners that you're working with, government agencies and, and other organizations that you're working with to, um, to obtain these mutual goals? We, we work with quite literally most, most of the big conservation organizations in the U.S., so World Wildlife Fund, Nature Conservancy, Conservation International, Wildlife Conservation Society, Manamot, BirdLife, uh, the, the list goes on, on and on, Audubon, all of these partners and others have been tremendously important. But really most of our campaigns are, are in collaboration not just with these large conservation organizations, but often with host governments. So we work very closely with CONAP in, Me in Mexico, that's the National Parks uh, of Mexico. We work with the um, municipalities in the Philippines, right down to small conservation organizations like the Palau Conservation Society, uh, small conservation organizations that are doing incredible work. So we partner with them to run the campaigns. And these groups, large or small, provide us with what we call our campaign managers. These are the individuals that actually are on the ground running the campaign. We don't pay mm. these individuals. They're seconded to the project for two years. What we do is we train them up through one of four universities that we work with. They come to study at the university in, a, in what we would call a sandwich course in England, where they come to the university, they then go back to the field to implement their campaign, return to the university, go back to the field several times. Um, and then we mentor them throughout the two-year period and visit them to make sure that they're on track with the project plan that they complete as part of their course. And we offer this in four languages around the world in four different universities. And, and the course is validated at the master's level by the University of Texas at, at El Paso. So that's another group of partners that are invaluable to our work. What, what specifically, what universities are you working with? So, so we work, um, we teach the English um, course in, in collaboration with, with Georgetown. We teach the Mexican course uh, in collaboration with the Jesuit University in Guadalajara. We teach the uh, Indonesian course out of Bogor Agricultural Institute, and we teach the, um, the um, 
uh, Chinese Mandarin course uh, working in collaboration um, with Southwest Forest uh, University in Kunming, China. So these are sort of the nodes that we work with, uh, some more, more closely than others, but all four of them, um, the, the courses that are undertaken are validated um, by the University of Texas at El Paso, which is our global accreditation partner. Paul, as uh, you look into your crystal ball and contemplate RIR's future, what are some of the major initiatives that RIR will be focusing on? Our strategic plan calls for several things. First of all, increasing the number of campaigns that we can do. So currently, we are running anywhere between 48 and 60 campaigns a year around the world. We would like to see the development of a Francophone-speaking university node, a French-speaking university node, as well as a Portuguese one, so that we are better able to help countries like Brazil uh, as well as Francophone countries. We also want to continue to improve the quality of each individual campaign. Um, what we've shifted towards in recent years is what we call thematic cohorts. So whereas before we might have had a group of campaigns from different countries all working on different threats, um, so within a single what we call cohort or class. We might have had one campaign working on tigers, another one working on coral reefs, another one working on um, bushmeat. Now what we're doing is we're launching thematic cohorts. So, for example, all of our campaigns that are currently going through our Indonesia system this year are all around marine protected areas and no-take zones whereas all of the campaigns that have, uh, are currently operational in the Andean region are all around upper watershed deforestation and reciprocal agreements. So I think what we're going to see in RARE is more campaigns, better quality campaigns, and, and continuing thematic, um, th continuing themes. The themes may vary year to year, but continuing to operate thematic cohorts. Very exciting. Paul, as we wrap up here, tell us how the public can get involved with RARE, either in terms of volunteer opportunities or financial support. Um, certainly, uh, we live on the generous uh, financial contributions of our donors, and if they log on to www.rareconservation.org, uh, that is a platform, or they can uh, Google us and, and write to us and support. Any, any amount is welcome. We do use interns. Um, we have a wonderful intern program where people can help us, uh, both in the field um, or, or in, in Washington, D.C., um, and, of course, simply getting to know our campaigns, getting to understand the challenges that conservation faces and the tremendous heroes. Every one of our campaign managers is the hero of this story, not myself or Rare. It's the people who are running campaigns in the field. And going on to our, our portal, Rare Planet, www.rareplanet.org, um, listeners to your program can, can look at our campaigns and can communicate with our campaign managers and lead agencies and ask questions both of us and of them, and learn more about the challenges. And if they're traveling to any of these remote and wonderful sites, um, you know, they can visit them and see the work that's ongoing on the ground. These are the heroes, and, and these are the, the champions of conservation all around the world. And my hat's off to them. Paul Butler of Rare Conservation, we thank you for being with us today on World Footprints. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our show today. And each and every week, as we always do, we look forward to spending quality time with you and connecting with you in real time on Facebook, Twitter, and all of our other uh, social network platforms. Please don't forget to follow us on uh, Stitcher, our mobile platform, and you can sign up for that from our website and our newsletter at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best. The Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. Because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.